Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We begin today's special topical episode with a quiz. What is the leading cause of death for all Americans aged 18 to 45? Car accidents? No. Guns? No. COVID? No. It is overdoses of the drug fentanyl, which claim over 70,000 lives a year, some two-thirds of all of the record-setting 100,000-plus drug overdoses in this country in 2021. If you're like me, you found this fact astonishing, particularly given the very limited public knowledge of fentanyl. The drug began as a highly effective treatment for chronic pain in the 1990s, but for a variety of reasons over the last six years, it has morphed into a public health crisis of the first order and a series of law enforcement challenges of unprecedented difficulty. To make matters worse, fentanyl is often cut into all manner of drugs, from pills to heroin, and can be lethal in very small amounts. And unlike heroin, cocaine, or marijuana, it is synthetic, cooked up in a lab like methamphetamine, yet it is distributed with all the professional organization and muscle of two of the world's largest and most dangerous drug cartels. In this special episode of Talking Feds, we bring together three of the nation's most knowledgeable experts on the various aspects of the drug overdose epidemic plaguing the country. And in addition, we have the special opportunity of sitting down with the top federal law enforcement officer for fentanyl and other drugs. So, to set up the problem in all its difficult parameters, we welcome three terrific experts, and they are Dr. Nora Volkoff. Dr. Volkoff has served as the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse since 2003. Her work has been instrumental in demonstrating that addiction to drugs is a brain disorder. She previously served as the Associate Dean and a Professor of Psychiatry at the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University. Dr. Volkoff has published a long series of peer-reviewed articles, book chapters, and four other books on brain imaging for mental and addictive disorders and co-edited neuroscience in the 21st century. She won the Nathan Davis Award for Outstanding Government Service, and she was named Innovator of the Year by U.S. News and World Report. Dr. Volkoff also was among Time Magazine's Top 100 People Who Shaped the World and Fortune Magazine's 34 Leaders Who Are Changing Healthcare. Dr. Volkoff, thank you so much for joining this episode of Talking Feds. Oh, thanks for having me. And it's great to call me Nora. Lenny Bernstein, a reporter for the Washington Post. He's been covering health and medicine since 2014. He began his career with the LA Times in 1985, then went to the Post in 2000 as an editor for their national desk. He's been awarded the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting, the George Polk Award for Medical Reporting, and the Hillman Prize for Broadcast Journalism, quite a trifecta. Lenny, thanks very much for joining this episode. Thank you for having me. 
Dr. Keith Humphreys, the Esther Ting Memorial Professor in Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Stanford School of Medicine, as well as a fellow at the Stanford Center for Innovation in Global Health. He's also a senior research career scientist at the VA Health Services Research Center. He's been in government as a drug policy advisor in a couple different stints in the Bush and Obama White Houses, and he continues to advise many states and national governments on policies regarding addiction. In 2009, Keith received an award for distinguished contribution to the public interest by the American Psychological Association and won the British Medical Association's Public Health Book of the Year Award for his book, Drug Policy and the Public Good. So pleased you could join us, Keith. Thanks very much, Harry. Glad to be here. Forgive those laborious introductions, but I really want people to understand we've brought the pros to the table, which is not to say we're going to leave the table with new epiphanies that haven't yet been thought of, because this turns out to be a very, very difficult and Some would say, maybe not the three here, insoluble problem. If you don't mind, I'd like to just set up the basics a little bit. Let's start with overdoses. So 2021 was a record year for overdose deaths. We are over 100,000 in this country. So far, 2022 shows indications of eclipsing those grim numbers. What is going on? What's driving the crisis? And why, particularly now, are we seeing such a precipitous rise? Well, I can jump in, and I think that we would all respond in the same way. There are two major factors that are driving these. One of them has to do with the COVID pandemic, which has exacerbated the vulnerabilities of individuals and communities, which makes them more prone to take drugs and That includes, for example, the closing of support systems that existed to uh, provide with treatment to individuals with substance use disorder, including emergency departments. So those support systems, the loss of uh, jobs, the isolation, all of those are factors that increase stress. And we know that increasing stress drives drug taking. But at the same time, there is another element that has played an important role, and is that during the COVID pandemic, we have seen an acceleration of the distribution of fentanyl throughout all of the country that was limited in the Northeast, and now it's absolutely everywhere, that was limited to use to contaminate heroin, and now it's used to contaminate everything. And the most recent development is that the bringing of illicit fentanyl in illicitly manufactured prescription pills is now opening up the gate to making people that in the past would have not been at risk for having an overdose now are clearly very much at the chance of overdosing if they purchase an illicit pill, whether it is a stimulant, what they think is a stimulant medication like Adderall, or a benzodiazepine medication they think that it is to help them sleep, or, or even a pain analgesic. So those are two major factors. But within each one of them, of course, there are specifics. But this is overall what I would say is driving the really high numbers that we are seeing. Let's try to unpack that then a little more. Look, fentanyl, I think, goes through a a normal development process and is just a prescribed drug. But it is my sense, the first I ever heard of it, maybe most people ever heard of it, was 2016 when Prince died of an overdose. Is it largely a matter of the illicit 
fabrication and distribution of it, or as with, say, OxyContin, largely a matter of abuse of the existent prescription and pharmacological system. Do we have a sense of that? And if I can add to this, why do we go from 1990 to around 2016, 2017 with fentanyl as a footnote? And now all of a sudden, I believe it's involved in something like two thirds of these 100,000 plus drug overdoses annually. The deaths are coming entirely from the illicit supply of fentanyl. Mm. There's nothing wrong with fentanyl. It was invented by uh, Janssen about 60 years ago. It's actually incredibly useful when used medically for things like controlling pain and late stage cancer. It's used in uh, surgeries and anesthesia. But in those settings, it's going to be precisely measured out at a very, very small dose. And in that case, it's useful. And in an illicit market, it's of wildly varying potency and the person taking it, of course, not being prescribed by a physician. They don't know what they're necessarily taking. Yeah. Do they think they're even taking fentanyl? That's a really good question to the extent to which people know what it is they're taking. At this point, if you're in an East Coast heroin market, you probably do know because virtually every heroin that is seized has fentanyl in it. But for people who are using other types of drugs, like the ones Nora just mentioned, like pressed pills that look exactly like prescription pills, and you think it's an Ativan, that can be fentanyl and you don't know it. And, and that is why we've had a number of deaths of kids, you know, teenagers, college kids. Yeah. And the reason that's happening is, you know, if you've used heroin for a very long time, you do have a certain amount of tolerance to opioids. If you've never used opioids and you take what you think is an Ativan and you take fentanyl instead, you have no tolerance to that. And your risk of overdose, meaning that your breathing slows down to the point that it stops, is extremely high. And that's the diabolical nature of the market. One other thing that may, people may wonder is why do traffickers make fentanyl at all, given that it kills people? Yeah. Why would you want to kill your customers? It's because the profit margin is simply spectacular. Can you explain? So with heroin, you have to have a, a farm somewhere. You've probably overseen by a dodgy warlord in a part of the world with weak governance. And then you have to ship, process that plant product, opioid poppy, and ship it 7,000, 15,000 miles, getting it past all these border posts, worrying about interdiction. Whereas fentanyl, a single chemist can whip it up in a sink, including very close to the final market source. So the profit margin for traffickers is about a hundredfold higher than it is for heroin. And if you're making that much money per sale, as cold as this sounds, you can actually afford to kill some of your customers and you'll still come out financially ahead. Fentanyl is not something that users demanded. It's something that supply side did because it's extraordinarily lucrative. You know, no one should ever have done this at all, ever, but it happens. We all know it happens. And think about a college student saying to another college student, do you have an Adderall? Can I borrow one? there was a reasonable expectation 10, 15 years ago that that was unadulterated. Now, you do not know what you are getting. That could have been a fake pill pressed by a, a drug cartel on the other side of the border, brought over here. And as Keith just said, you've got no resistance. You've got no tolerance to what's in that. And so we see younger people dying that way. Well, let me stick with this example because I just want to understand. I think, you know, in my mind, okay, I'm addicted to heroin. So I have in my, you know, this may be terribly antiquated, but you got to go somewhere to a seamy place and risk violence and someone brings it to you. Let's stay with my dorm mate. Where does he get the Adderall from? 
and how is it sort of readily available on campus? And is that related to what Lenny was just talking about with the whipping it up, you know, breaking bad style in a sink? Well, smart and savvy kids can get them online. They don't have to go to a bad part of town Uh. and, and deal with someone who's got a gun stuck in their belt. They can buy them over the dark web from the U.S. suppliers or from other countries. They show up in the post office box. Yeah. Well, so if I were going to ship, you know, a bale of opium poppies, right, that would be very detectable. But, you know, the supply of fentanyl can fit in a routine, looks like just like an absolute ordinary letter from another country. Why another country, by the way? Why? It generally is manufactured abroad? Yeah. Initially, it's China in the shadow of their licit pharmaceutical industry. But increasingly, they're now shipping what are called precursor chemicals. So like, these are the things you used to then make the drugs you're going to sell, shipping them directly to Mexico, and then they're imported over the land border. And so that's the trade. But you know, with the internet, it doesn't matter. We buy lots of things. We don't know exactly where they're made anymore. That's just how you know global commerce works. It's tra- So to the end user, that can all be hidden. All they know is that this particular site or... The particular site that looks nice and designed for a 19-year-old somehow is connected. You, you guys have twice used the word cartel. So there, there are big, bad, nasty international businesses with machine guns behind them who are at the beginning of this supply chain. Yeah. A single chemist can do these things on their own, entrepreneurial chemists. And there's certainly probably some of that, including some people, particularly in China, who probably work in the legitimate industry during the day. But to distribute throughout the United States and to pay off people has to be paid off and also to protect the physical plant in corrupt countries takes a large transnational crime group. And so they are pivotal to this international trade of chemicals from China to Mexico and then fentanyl into the United States. I was just going to comment that what it is uh, clear is the incentives for bringing fentanyl into the illicit drug market are gigantic and driven, of course, by greed. And that unless it is targeted very, very proactively, They are not going to go away because they have the capabilities of rapidly shifting their modes of distribution. And from the synthesis perspective, it is relatively easy to synthesize where there is the opportunity to actually uh, constrain it is by regulating the precursors. And that is, is, of course, one of the main targets. But the other side of the cone, and I think this is one of the issues that also should come into the discourse is that while people that are taking heroin and people that actually are taking other drugs regularly know that there is a high risk of their drugs that they are buying to be contaminated, many others do not. And that could be your teenager or it could be your middle-aged person that cannot get their physician to prescribe a medication for them to go to sleep. So the importance of educating the public about the reality of what the dangers on the illicit drug market currently are It's crucial for us as a nation to bring it forward because now fentanyl is literally everywhere. And as Lenny was mentioning and Keith, uh, we now saw for the first time more than doubling in one year period the deaths from adolescents from fentanyl overdoses. And as Keith mentioned, it's not that the teenagers seek out fentanyl, not at all. They have very low levels of heroin, cocaine use, which is also frequently contaminated, but they do favor illicit prescriptions. And that's where the hook comes. But it's also middle-aged people. So it's not now we diversify it enormously. So in terms of what is it that we can do, training and educating the public and the providers 
about the dangers associated with fentanyl. And the other aspect that we also need to be aware is fentanyl by its potency, it actually increases the risk of overdose, but it's also highly reinforcing and can therefore have properties that people that are addicted to heroin that have become tolerant to it find as positive. So now we're seeing a group of opioid users that seeks out actively fentanyl. And of course, targeted intervention need to be different for them than it is for other people that are not seeking, that in fact are afraid for taking fentanyl, but do not know how to test their drugs. Yeah. So I see this dual market. Let me just stick with this pharmacologically for one second. I've always thought of you know heroin as top of the charts in its analgesic, if that's the right word, properties. And we read that fentanyl is 100 times as potent, 100 times as addictive, which among other things means teeny little changes could be the difference from strong pain suppression to overdose. How do you even do that? And what's it even mean to say that something is 100 times more potent than heroin? Well, you know, from the perspective of pharmacology, what we've learned is that drugs bind to the receptor, right? And in that interaction, it modifies three-dimensionally the position of the receptor in the membrane of cells. And that initiates a a cascade of events inside the cell. Uh And the ability of these opioid drugs to initiate that cascade varies enormously from one to the other. So, for example, fentanyl is much more active at creating this signaling than morphine or heroin. And that's why it's so much more potent. It's just much, much better at binding. It just fits and sticks better than heroin. It's not just the stickiness. So there are two properties. One of them is its affinity that relates to the stickiness. And there are drugs that have higher affinity than others. And in that respect, for example, you have drugs that have very low affinity that therefore they will not be competing very well. Drugs with high affinity, though, like, for example, buprenorphine, which we use for the treatment of pain and for the treatment of opioid addiction, has very high affinity for the receptor. But its intrinsic efficacy, even though it binds to the receptor, the signaling is limited. So even though you can buy all of the receptors with buprenorphine, you only have, say, for example, 30% of the maximal signaling that you will generate with a drug like heroin. Mm. And then fentanyl has even a greater efficacy than heroin. So, so there is the affinity, and then there is the signaling that happens when the drug binds to the receptor. And fentanyl has both high affinity and both high intrinsic efficacy. And Lenny, you suggested that the growth, the spike from, you know, a normal use to illicit use is what really has driven the overdose. I was struck and sort of horrified at the notion that people are buying stuff and don't even know it's there. Is that the kind of paradigmatic problem? Or is it just that people are now seeking out a synthetic fentanyl and they just can't control it? Are they really being surprised in their last moments of life? Well, I think it's both. There have been three eras in this epidemic. We started with pills, oxycodone, and some people became addicted, mainly unknowingly, but not all. You know, billions of pills were diverted to the black market and 
You all know that whole history of the uh, pill mills in Florida. Then there was heroin. Again, more people became addicted, a drug you do have to seek out. And now we have fentanyl probably since, you know, 14, 15, 16, both in these illicit pills. And for people who are chasing that high, people who become addicted to fentanyl, and it happens very, very quickly in some cases because of certain people's brain chemistry, are often seeking out that drug. I gather that the real spikes since 2016 are these cartels, but you do hear fingers point, or I guess you don't hear fingers pointed, but you see fingers pointed at the original manufacturers as having acted irresponsibly somehow to have triggered the problem. Can you explain what that contribution was? It might be helpful just to think about how markets work, so drug markets. Heroin was on the wane in the 1990s in the United States. And then you have the things that Lenny described and did such great reporting about at, at the Post, where you know prescribing per capita of opioids goes up 400% in a little more than a decade. Now, a huge number of people are addicted. So the resurgence of heroin markets initially was to service that group. Sam Quinones has written really well about that was a strategic decision of, wow, we could convert these people over. Heroin costs about a third of what a street oxy does. And that's where it was created. But then once there's a drug market, people can enter it directly. So in other words, just because it initially was there to take care of people who had you know, been, been using OxyContin for 10 years, now there's a heroin dealer in town, in Youngstown, Ohio, and there didn't used to be. And that could be someone came in and that's their first exposure to a far stronger drug. And then fentanyl comes in on top of that through the heroin supply. So when you look at these things, some people have made the argument, well, you know, you can't really blame, you know, the Sackler family for this. Actually, you can. They created the market conditions that allowed these drugs to surge back into American life. And we are still, even someone who's dying of fentanyl, we are paying for the price of what happened from the late 90s up to about 2011. I wanted to interject because I want to push a little bit. And absolutely, I think that the Sacklers and other companies absolutely were crucial in triggering what we observe at the opioid crisis, the initiation. But there were other complicit agencies that enabled it to happen. And I think it is important to state it because otherwise we're going to end up in the same problem. First of all, there was a system in the healthcare that did not pay attention to substance use disorders. So physicians were actually unable to train or to distinguish what is addiction. They didn't understand it, and they wouldn't be able to determine who would be at high risk when they were prescribing these opioids, nor actually if the patients become addicted to recognize it or treat it. So the indifference of the healthcare system for substance use disorder is one of the elements that contribute to it. A second element to contribute, I I would say, is that we have neglected uh, the, the proper treatment of patients with pain. And we continue to do so. And if we don't tackle that problem, we will see people going out into the illicit market to buy these drugs because severe chronic pain is devastating. And third, of course, and again, it's not that I want to point fingers at anyone, but my view is if we do not look at these things in the face, we will repeat the mistakes as agencies and insurance providers. We actually were too lenient in supporting and paying a massive number of opioid prescriptions during almost two decades. So yes, there is an origin about the distribution 
and the education, improper education of clinicians on how to use them. But there were other systems that failed. And I think that we need to strengthen them to avoid this from happening again. I was a U.S. attorney in a part of the country that had real OxyContin problems in the rural communities. And it was mainly bad docs who were prescribing. It was mainly, in other words, corruption of the licit market. I'd like to understand better the relationship between the Sackler piece and this big international cartel that we're hearing gets precursor chemicals from China and it comes in through Mexico, which seems like a whole different market. Are they essentially two different markets side by side that are just reinforcing or is it somehow all joined so that you begin with the baddest of the bad guys and yet it somehow winds up with a dirty doctor giving his 60-year-old patient a fentanyl pill? It's a pretty complicated question to answer. At the policy level, they are distinct problems. So Everything Nora said is completely correct about the holes in the training of medicine, the way we finance care, the weaknesses in regulatory agencies. Those holes, which Purdue and, by the way, other companies, you know, Teva, uh, Johnson Johnson, and so on, ran through. Are those holes are still there? So, from a policy viewpoint, it matters to know that that's those are legally regulated companies, ostensibly. So we have a lot of capacity to fill those. So if you're a U.S. attorney or you're in the Congress or whatever, you think, okay, how did they do that? How did they market this way? We can stop them. Whereas on the illicit side, you have none of those tools. There's no license to be a fentanyl dealer. You can't put any constraint on them. You can punish them, obviously, you know, through the criminal justice system. But those are all gone. So in that sense, they're really different. At the level of individual people who are addicted, they could be completely blended. We see over and over and over again somebody who started with a prescription from a doctor for a legitimate health problem, pain got into difficulty taking it over, got addicted. The doctor didn't know what to do, maybe got angry, kicked them out when he found out they were misusing the prescription. And now that person is in an illicit market, buying heroin or buying fentanyl. And it may be recorded in the end as a fentanyl death, but the story is more complicated in that person's life. Got it. All right. Last question then along these lines. You spoke at first about the problem being concentrated in the Northeast. I'm wondering as things now exist in the spike, are there demographics about the overdose victims, young, old, race, urban, rural, et cetera, or is it just a completely non-discriminating drug when it comes to it? It gets a little bit of everybody. We know that anyone can be potentially at risk that can get an illicit drug, but uh, the majority of the overdoses are happening in individuals who are 24 to 44 years of age. There is a higher rate among men and the groups, race and ethnic groups that have the highest mortality from overdoses are whites and American Indians and Alaska Natives. Now, these demographics are changing actually quite rapidly. And we now know, for example, that the group that has the fastest rate of overdose deaths in the United States are Black Americans, which actually had been sort of protected to a certain extent because of the fact that they were less likely to receive treatment for pain, they were not given opioids. But now that the whole mixture of drugs is coming in, in, into fruition, we're seeing that they, of course, are very vulnerable. And that's where we see the highest rate of increases in overdoses. But in absolute numbers, 24 to 44 years of age, 
uh, white Americans, American Indians, and Alaska Natives. And I think that another issue that we should comment upon overall, because it does point to the nature of what we're living, is that more and more we're seeing that the overdose deaths with fentanyl, as well as other drugs, have multiple drugs on board. So it's not just fentanyl by itself. It's combined with benzodiazepines, or it's combined with anticonvulsants, or it's combined with alcohol. Similarly, methamphetamine deaths or cocaine deaths are frequently combined with fentanyl. So more and more people are subjected to multiple substances, unbeknownst or sometimes because they seek them out. And that makes the treatment of and reversal of overdoses so much harder to deal with. So at this point in our episode, we might break for a sidebar, but we have something even more special today. A one-on-one interview with the administrator, that is the top official in charge of the Drug Enforcement Administration, Ann Milgram, who has buck-stopping authority for the law enforcement challenges posed by the current fentanyl crisis. All right, it is a real Privilege for our listeners and an honor and pleasure for us and me personally to sit down with the administrator of the Drug Enforcement Administration, the leader of the DEA, Ann Milgram. Ann oversees more than 10,000 special agents and intelligence officers stationed both domestically and in foreign countries. Before coming to the DEA, Anne had a super illustrious career in law enforcement and scholarship. She was a professor of practice and founder of the Criminal Justice Lab at her alma mater, NYU, and most importantly, a regular guest on Talking Feds. And she acted as New Jersey's attorney general, one of the youngest in the country from 2007 to 2010, where she had a long list of accomplishments, including reforming the Camden Police Department. And that work led to her heading the Criminal Justice Initiative at the Lauren John Arnold Foundation for five years. She began her career as an ADA at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and then a federal prosecutor for the Department of Justice. Ann Milgram, thank you so much for joining us to discuss this very challenging, daunting, and to many, not very well-known problem. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. All right. So we've had a crash course with journalists, physicians, and policymakers on the unprecedented dangers that fentanyl in particular poses and its outsized contribution to drug overdose deaths, which eclipsed 100,000 last year in this country and are at a pace to go more than that in 2022. Let me just ask you just the nature of the challenge it is for law enforcement. Is it, in fact, unprecedented for the DEA? And how do you try to get your hands around it? It's a great question. And I think the way I would answer that is to start by saying that we lost 107,622 Americans last year from drug overdoses and drug poisonings. And we call them poisonings because oftentimes what we know is that Americans are taking what they believe to be a legitimate pharmaceutical pill like OxyContin or Adderall or hydrocodone when in fact it is fentanyl 
or they're taking other drugs, whether it's heroin or cocaine or methamphetamine, when in fact those drugs are laced by fentanyl. And so more than 70,000 lives were lost from fentanyl alone in the past year. So this moment is a moment we've never, ever been at before. What's also really important, I think, Harry, and that I don't think any of us have done enough to help people understand yet, is that all of what we are seeing is being driven by two of the most significant criminal organizations in Mexico, their cartels, the Sinaloa and the CJNG cartel. Virtually all of the fentanyl on U.S. streets is coming from those two criminal networks that operate in the United States and worldwide in 30 or more countries. And so it is easy, I think, for people to think of this as isolated overdose deaths or drug poisonings, but nothing could be further from the case. This is essentially two massive criminal networks that are responsible for killing 107,622 Americans with chemically made fentanyl and methamphetamine that is starting in China with companies that are selling these chemicals, a lot of Chinese organized crime, criminal elements in China that are selling these chemicals to these two cartels in Mexico that are then mass producing chemical drugs that are flooding into the U.S. And what's really, I think, vital for all of us to sort of be focused on, and we're focused every single day at DEA, number one on Sinaloa and CJNG, and number two on the fact that this is a different drug threat than we've ever faced before. This is completely different. And really since 2015, it's just a new threat. It's deadlier. It's more widespread. And what I tell people all the time is the way to think about this is that if we do not stop what's happening in China and Mexico from happening there, then there is an unlimited amount of fentanyl and methamphetamine that can come into our country. And so it's a new threat. It is a devastating threat. And I think we are in an unprecedented place where I worry, just as you said, that the number of overdose deaths and drug poisonings has gone up year after year. Since 2015, 2017, it's now doubled. And I worry very much about there are no limits beyond what the chemicals that China can produce and the drugs that Mexican cartels can make right now. So how much do we actually know about the cartel's manufacture and distribution of the drug? And is the current situation related to the broader opioid crisis that we've been hearing about for over a decade that is widely considered to be driven, at least in part, by drug companies? So what we know about the opioid epidemic writ large is that it did start with the overprescribing of pharmaceutical opioids, of OxyContin, Hydrocodone, Percocet, and so on. That then shifted as those drugs became less available over the last decade. That shifted to a number of folks who had become addicted to legitimate pharmaceutical drugs, then started taking heroin. Some of those individuals later did end up taking fentanyl or seeking fentanyl out in the illicit market. But what we see today is not about legitimate pharmaceutical opioids. There's calculated deliberate treachery at every step of this process. And if you think, Harry, about some of the biggest criminal organization cases that you've done and you multiplied that by about 100, that would start to get you close to what I think we're seeing now. So it starts in China where these chemicals are being sold. They're mislabeled. They're deceptive in how they're packaged and, and shipped. Precursor chemicals, yes. Precursor chemicals, exactly. So that's the first level of deception, is that they're not forthright about what is actually being sent to Mexico and to some other places in Central America that are then brought to Mexico. 
The next level is happening in Mexico, where Sinaloa and CJNG are making fentanyl powder. They're then, and again, this is illicit fentanyl that will be used to sell illegally in the U.S. There's nothing medical or pharmaceutical about it. This is just all illicit fentanyl. The cartels are then taking that fentanyl powder and they're pressing a large amount of that into fake pills. Now, people use the term counterfeit pills. I don't like it because it gives the impression that it's really oxy. It's just a different version or somebody's, you know, making something that's like oxy. It's not oxy. Again, there is deliberate calculated treachery where what the cartels are doing is they're buying the stamps and the colors to make the pills look as though they're real. Those pills are all fentanyl and things like Mexican Tylenol or other fillers. So again, it's a lie. It's a trick. And it is intending to deceive Americans, particularly young Americans, for example, on social media, that believe that you could buy a legitimate Oxy on Snapchat, that you could buy an Adderall on TikTok. You can't. And we should be very clear in saying this, that you cannot buy a legitimate pharmaceutical on social media or on the internet. But what the cartels are doing is they're taking advantage of a few things. Number one, the fact that we did have this opioid epidemic where there was an extensive amount of pills in the U.S. And so that's a piece of it. The other piece is that they're really exploiting social media, particularly for young people, because people are connected in networks there's a false sense, I think, of safety and comfort that comes from that. And then they're saying, hey, I've got an oxy. Do you want an oxy that I'll deliver to your house? And so what's happening, Sinaloa and CJNG are making this fentanyl. Some of that fentanyl they're pushing into the U.S. in powder form that's then being used to lace cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine. Are they then just connecting with pre-established cocaine and heroin distribution conspiracies to have this laced in, or are they running everything from China to end product? Right. So this is a really interesting question. So I think when I was beginning as a prosecutor and doing drug cases, and probably for you too, your question sort of indicates to me like your experience was the same as mine. There was a cocaine dealer. There was a meth dealer or heroin dealer. They weren't always the same person. What we see now is really, we call it polydrug. So even coming out of Mexico, when we have seizures just along the border, almost always right now, we have these massive seizures. There'll be fentanyl powder, fentanyl pills, methamphetamine powder, and then some cocaine, heroin, or marijuana, often money as well, sometimes guns. And so what we see is that all of this is being trafficked together by the cartels. And this is also true in a city or somebody on a social media site, they'll often be offered all of those different drugs. So the world has really changed significantly in that couple of things. One is I do think of fentanyl as a shapeshifter because it can be lacing all these other drugs. It can be in these fake pills of all different kinds. And so some of that is why I think we see a little bit of a change in, in the drug market. But a lot of it also is just driven by the fact that these cartels are pushing all of these drugs, their main thing is fentanyl and meth, but they are also selling cocaine and heroin and other drugs with it. And the experts explained to us how the the sort of vicious commercial calculation where, you know, you lose a few customers, it's just a cost of doing business. Well, look, this strikes me as an old style prosecutor, as you keep putting it, as incredibly difficult to try to police. It's synthetic, it's smaller, it comes in, and it doesn't have the same kind of on-the-street distribution 
pathways, what sorts of new strategies are you trying to bring to bear? So the first and most important thing I can say is that we are relentlessly focused on Sinaloa and CJ&G, the two cartels that are operating worldwide. And we also, as you know, operate worldwide. We have almost 300 offices across the United States and across the world. And so we are mapping, we are analyzing, and we are targeting those two significant networks. As a rule, it's something we've often focused in the past on high value targets. So think about the case that we brought against El Chapo, who was one of the leaders of the Sinaloa cartel. But in today's world, with what we see and what we know, it's not enough to take down the head of the cartel. We have to disable the network, the entire network. And so we're thinking about this much more in the way that I think the United States has evolved to think about terrorism in the past decade or two, which is to think about networks as a whole, as opposed to just the individuals at the top of those networks. The second thing we're doing that I think is vital is that we've launched something called Operation Overdrive. We've, since the beginning of this year, worked very closely in 34 cities across the United States to target the overdose deaths and drug poisonings and the drug-related violence and to do what we can to reduce things like drug-related violence. So when I say 107,622 American lives, that is just the drug poisonings. It doesn't include all of the increased violence we've seen in communities, much of which is drug-related. And so Miami is a great example where working in partnership with the Miami PD, other state, local, and federal partners, we have essentially operated for three months in the four most significant violent hotspots and been able to reduce homicides there by 36%. So the work of Operation Overdrive is really how can we be proactive, data-driven in addressing the greatest threats in communities? And so what we did to start was to basically say, here we looked at FBI and CDC data and said, what are the places across our country that are suffering the most from drug-related violence and from overdose deaths and drug poisonings? We then selected those 34 places, and we did extensive intelligence and threat assessment work to understand who are the worst offenders, who are the shooters, who are the people that are selling the fentanyl that's killing people in those communities. And then we've taken that into operations across the country. We're just finishing that first phase. We're about to go up in 57 cities and counties across the United States, again, being really focused in those communities on, you know, who are the most significant and dangerous individuals and organizations that are driving poisoning deaths and violence deaths. That's what we are focused on in the U.S. side. I've done that, and a lot of communities have with some success in in gun violence. I mean, the fact is people will often know who's responsible. What about the very the other end of the pipeline, Anne? Is there anything to be done with, given all the sort of geopolitical complications with China or any attempt to try to get any cooperation with international partners to reduce or smother the production of the precursor chemicals? Yes, we're very focused on this. My view is that we have to be focused on the entire supply chain. So it starts in China. We're very focused on a number of Chinese chemical companies that are the lead suppliers of the precursor chemicals. And we're focused on the network. And the network begins in China, in our estimation, goes to Mexico, and then comes into the U.S. And so all of that is part of this threat that we've mapped as part of the network. So yes, we have to be focused on the Chinese chemical companies, as well as on the cartels and the mass production of the drugs that are taking place in Mexico. And so it's a vital part of this conversation. There is 
absolutely no question in my mind that China needs to do a lot more. There are hundreds of thousands of chemical companies. They're unbelievably underregulated. So there's essentially no know your customer laws. There's no requirement really of accurate labeling. And that allows people to really engage in this kind of false trickery, mislabel things, ship them out. And then again, we are tracking a great deal of it, but it's really vital that this problem be stopped at the beginning. Because as I said, if unlimited amounts of drugs can be created, if you have unlimited amount of precursor chemicals, we have to stop the precursor chemicals. And I gather that in, that means the administrator of the DEA has to be at the table when the president or whatever is going over to China saying, put in our priority too, because this is an essential part of the puzzle that's killing over 100,000 Americans a year. Let me switch gears for one second. So I had my experience in rural Pennsylvania and meth and OxyContin were getting pretty big. Fentanyl, I was gobsmacked to hear what a huge and different problem it is. Maybe it's because I'm, you know, now an older fuddy-duddy, but do you find that given the enormity of it, there's a lot of public ignorance about the nature and enormity of the problem, and what role, if any, is the DEA playing in sort of public education? I think it's such an important question, Harry, and I think it is one of the most important things all of us can do is have these kinds of conversations. So, I started DEA last June, and in September, we put out a public safety alert, the first one we'd done in six years, to alert Americans to the dangers of fentanyl and to these fake pills that we were essentially seizing all over the United States. And this came to me really because I I look at all of our work every single day, and you you could not look at all the investigations and cases we were doing and not see the central theme of fentanyl is killing Americans. You know this. It's the leading cause of death now for the age 18 to 45 in the United States. And so in all 50 states, we were seizing these fake pills. Where, by the way, where did the seizures tend to take place? All 50 states. You're asking the same questions I would ask, which is, right, what's the pattern here? And while I want to be honest in saying there are some patterns, this is a problem that is It's rural, suburban, urban. It is people of all ages, races, and genders. Now, the fact that when we talk about this, it's hard to wrap your mind around, but the leading cause of death for people over 45 is still what it always was. Things like natural causes, diseases, cancer, heart disease, in the last few years, COVID. For 18 to 45, it is now fentanyl. It's far more than car accidents. Think about how much we now know about car safety. All of us put our seatbelt on. We're incredibly aware of how important it is to be vigilant and careful. And fentanyl, for a variety of reasons, I think in part because it is a shapeshifter and it has been combined with other drugs. And again, think about this deliberate trickery where it's being sold as though it's something else. You know, it has allowed it to go across the country quicker and in a way that is less understood. If you add all the shootings and all the car accidents together, it's still less than drug overdoses and drug poisonings. And so we've launched a campaign called One Pill Can Kill because we really want people to understand, particularly young people who may be on social media, just one pill, even half a pill, people die from. We had 80 families come to DEA headquarters to meet with me and our leadership team and to talk about ways that we can partner on fentanyl. And these are all people who've lost family members, kids, spouses, brothers and sisters. And it is devastating to realize that for so many, the first time they knew anything about fentanyl was when their child died. 
the first moment that they understood the threat that essentially if you have a smartphone, there is a drug dealer in that smartphone. Your kid sitting in a bedroom, literally a drug dealer can find them and can lie to them and trick them about what they have and what they're doing. And that can show up on your doorstep 10 minutes later. And so it's really profoundly important to me that we start these conversations and we have these conversations because we know they work. We know less kids abuse drugs or misuse drugs when they understand or have conversations with family members. And Harry, I'll tell you what I do whenever I'm with like anyone, because obviously I spend my days thinking about this now is, you know, I'll put 10 or 15 grains of salt in my palm and show people that that is a deadly dose. That is enough fentanyl to kill someone. And you have no idea whether it's in what you're taking and you simply cannot take that risk. And you've probably had a lot of these conversations, but there was a mom who was with us at headquarters when we did this family fentanyl summit. She had lost both her kids to pills that they purchased on social media. And she just said to me, I never thought this could happen to me. And it hurts my heart to have those conversations every day. And so we think a lot about how do we meet this moment? How do we help people understand the threat? It is deadlier than it has ever been, and it is completely different. And so I'm grateful to you for doing this episode on it. And just we have to be having these national conversations about the harm and the threat that's out there today. Yeah, you're scaring me plenty. My oldest is about to start college, and you want them to be aware. And But this is even if you are aware, it's hard to know. Let's close here, Ms. Administrator. I'm thinking of prior successful law enforcement campaigns and controlled substances campaigns, and there are challenges here that were not present there. Do you see it as basically an issue of resources? If you had all the resources in the world, money, staffing, et cetera, do you think you'd be able to basically beat this thing? What lies between us, and obviously not zero fentanyl overdoses, but back to the kinds of levels that we saw as recently as, you know, seven, eight years ago before this explosion of overdose deaths occurred? So no one sitting in my position would ever say that they don't need more resources. Of course, we always want more resources. (laughs) but, But what I can tell you is this. I can tell you we have the best people and we have men and women in our operations, intelligence, and diversion divisions worldwide who literally, they wake up every day thinking about how do they defeat these networks. And we are relentlessly focused on those two networks. So if you ask me sitting here, I think it's simple, but it's not easy. And so it's very clear to me what the threat is, who the adversaries are. And that's incredibly helpful, as you know. What we have to do now is everything we can do worldwide as the United States government to leverage every single tool, authority, and it's not just DEA, it's across the United States government, to defeat these two networks. We've seen the United States government be successful at doing similar things, and so I have a lot of confidence that the men and women of DEA are incredible and that we will defeat these networks. But I think it's also really important to be clear-eyed about how extensive this threat is. It is a worldwide threat. Fentanyl is a uniquely American threat right now, but this sort of chemically manufactured methamphetamine we're seeing worldwide from those same cartels. And so I think the task is enormous and we have an incredible amount of work to do. I also will tell you, I wish that the American public could see what I see every day because I was just sitting in a room with some of our Intel analysts who are running these incredible analytical process to help us understand in an even more deep way these specific networks. And it is incredible, the work that's happening. Now, we have a lot of work to do to action that and to get there. But 
I think we're in the right place at this moment to be doing the work that needs to be done. Ann Milgram, thanks so much for spending time with us explaining this really unprecedented problem and all the things that the DEA and other partners in government and governments are doing to try to address it. Thank you so much. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we look at three different techniques for making rosé wine to see if there's truly a best way to rosé. First, rosé is a type of wine that's actually produced quite similarly to reds but the fermentation time of the grape is reduced, giving rosé its signature pink color. The first technique for making rosé is the skin contact method, in which black-skinned grapes such as Pinot Noir are crushed but allowed to remain in contact with the juice for a short period of time. After about 6 to 48 hours, as opposed to weeks or months for the reds, the skins are separated. This method is most frequently used in the top rosé-producing region of the world, Provence, and throughout the south of France. The second method is called saignet, which is the French word for bleeding. This method creates both a rosé and a red wine. Early in the maceration process, some of the pink juice created from the grape must is removed to make the rosé, while the remaining juice becomes a more concentrated red. A rosé made from this method tends to be richer and darker in both color and fruit flavor. This method is more rarely used, but it can be found more often in rosés from Spain, Napa, and Chile. The third method is blending. Contrary to what some people think, blending is not just a 50-50 pour of red and white wine. Instead, blending is where a white grape, such as Chardonnay, is blended with a red grape, and it's the most popular way to make a rosé champagne. Although popular in champagne, this method is used in still rosés as well. In fact, some winemakers in Provence choose to blend small percentages of white grape varieties into their rosés. It's not always obvious or easy to know which method was used to make a particular rosé. But the expert guides at Total Wine & More can help you navigate our wondrous selection to find a rosé that makes your day. So find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine & More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, so let's move now to what we're trying to do to meet the challenge on the treatment side. Nor I know you're especially expert here. What does the current best practices for addiction treatment look like? And are they even remotely equal to the task? We're very lucky to have medications for the treatment of opioid use disorder that work quite well. So the challenge is how do we distribute and make them equitable to everybody that needs them? And how do we keep people that are initiated on these treatments retain in treatment 
because these medications significantly reduce the likelihood of overdose mortality and significantly improve the likelihood of achieving recovery. But there have been challenges in their distributions and initiation, and there have also been challenges in retention of patients. What sort of challenges? A very significant number of patients, and that depends on whether you are initiated on methadone, on buprenorphine, or on naltrexone, which are the three medications used. For example, methadone has the best retention, but it is uh, probably around 50 to 60% of individuals are still on treatment at six months. With buprenorphine, maybe 50%, and with naltrexone is lower. So the issue of what are the challenges for ensuring that people stay in treatment longer periods is one of the areas that is actionable and proper models of care and alternative co-treatments with supporting these individuals are likely to improve outcomes. And it's an area that, of course, we're prioritizing in research. I would add a sort of a sociological point on top of, of all, all of that, which I agree with, and that is that the country is still fundamentally ambivalent about whether addiction is a legitimate medical condition that the healthcare system should treat. Yes. So you, you see that in uh, the attitudes people have, the sort of sometimes the hostility they have to addicted people. You see it in the low reimbursement rates. You see that in non-compliance with parity laws that are supposed to protect families so that they get addiction care for their loved ones and then they can't get it. And, and you see it, I'm embarrassed to say, because I teach in a medical school, you sometimes see it in doctors. You know, what are you doing in my clinic? I'm doing medicine, not doing with addiction. Yeah, you're a criminal or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or you're, you're just immoral. And I, I always say, you know, if, if you want to treat perfect people, you should not be in medicine, right? Because there aren't any. And everyone has substandard health behavior. All of us do. But that those attitudes are there. And that is part of why that even though we have these terrific FDA-approved medications, they are nowhere near you know, provided and received at the level that they could be. If we took this as seriously as we take cancer or heart disease, we would have many fewer people dying than we do today. We've also made it very difficult until recently for doctors to get the accreditation they need to give out these medications. And so not that many do. We had a thing called the X waiver, which I, Nora, it's gone now, right? Not completely. Not completely. You had to take a multi-hour course to distribute buprenorphine, naltrexone, methadone, but all you needed was a DEA license to hand out opioids. It was much easier to hand out the drug than the thing that helps you get off of. I'm trying to understand the relationship between treatment and overdose deaths. So I gather that many people become addicted to fentanyl, and then there's this six-month or longer regime. What about the people who just take an overdose? What sort of treatment options are available for that most extreme reaction to fentanyl? So overdose rescue is a separate question from treating an addiction. And we have, thank God, a fabulous, cheap medication, which is called naloxone. A lot of people know it as Narcan. Mm -hmm. And what, what that does essentially is when opioids are binding and, and producing a uh, overdose, it kicks that the opioids right out of the slot. And the person, it's miraculous if you've ever seen it, you know, 15, 30 minutes later, someone who was on the brink of death is suddenly breathing again. It's not a treatment for addiction. They're every bit addicted as they used to be, but they get through that acute crisis. And a lot of modeling that has been done, including by the, the Lancet Stanford group that I ran, shows that getting that medication out everywhere 
not just to doctors, but AMS drivers, but people who use drugs, people who love people who use drugs. Yeah. The dorm staff on, at universities, at high school counselors, librarians, that can save a lot of lives in opioids. It doesn't do a thing about our addiction problem. It is separate from treatment. But people who are not alive are never going to get treatment. And every time you rescue somebody, it is a potentially teachable moment you know, to say, can I connect you to services so this never happens again? I mean, it does seem to me there are two really twin problems here, one of addiction and and one of overdose. Now, the Biden administration is doing things here. They just announced a set of policies that focus on harm reduction, uh, like increasing access to naloxone. I know it's always tricky government uh, because they can get whipsawed so easily. But how do you evaluate the administration's response to the problem? My view is that they're actually, for the first time, the issue of expanding harm reduction has been put as one of the pillars for addressing the overdose crisis. And it does make very much sense because, as Dr. Askit was mentioning it, there are, there are two strategies that are the most powerful to actually address the opioid overdoses. Treatment of people and then the reversal with naloxone. But not everybody is ready for treatment. And so if we are so categorical, I said, we do not care about that, are not ready for treatment, we're opening that door for them to be at high risk of overdosing and dying. So the administration is realizing that practices, expanding naloxone, providing tests that can allow the person to test if the drug they are going to to administer has uh, fentanyl or not, providing places where they can go safely to inject themselves so that if they overdose, someone can actually protect them, access to syringe exchange programs. All of them, particularly uh, syringe exchange, naloxone and treatment, have shown the tremendous amount of benefit. And we're now doing research to optimize what are the conditions to which these safe injection sites can be valuable for protecting people. But it is clear that deployment of more than one intervention is what is necessary. And it is clear that not every one thing fits for every one person or community. And so we need to find the models that are going to be optimally able to, to actually create an impact at the individual and population level. As a reporter, I, I, I don't comment on policies. I cover people like Nora. As a citizen of the country, I am very grateful that harm reduction is moving to the fore, and it really is moving to the fore in the Biden administration. Think back not very many years when handing out fentanyl test strips was considered untouchable. Explain what those are for a second, Lang. These are strips you can use to test your illicit drug supply to see how much of it is fentanyl. Nobody wanted to touch that. It was a third rail. Think about syringe exchange and its history. It was extremely controversial. People said, you will encourage drug use if you give people clean needles. These are things that we now do routinely around the country. Why do we do them? Because 106,000 people died of overdoses last year. And in certain communities, people are dropping like flies. And we need to do something until we find a better way to bring those numbers down. So I am grateful as a, just as a person, not a a Washington Post reporter, that harm reduction has become as prominent as it has. Well, so 
we know you guys know much better than I all the sort of built in impediments to just sensible or progressive harm reduction and other policies. If you had the magic wand here, what else should they be doing that right now for political or resource reasons seem just fanciful? I think you need to integrate. We need to integrate the care of substance use disorders into the mainstream of American healthcare. And for that, I mean everything from the person who's extremely addicted and on the verge of overdose, as, as well as the person who's maybe drinking a bit too much and occasionally taking a benzo with it and is not at that point. And that's what we do with everything else. Heart disease, you know, sometimes your doctor will say you, you should exercise more, sometimes eat a better diet, sometimes you need a cardiac catheterization, and sometimes we need the paddles because it's an emergency. But it's all the way integrated through and it's seen as legitimate and it is also reimbursed as such. And I think we have to bite that bullet and say addiction is one of the principal killers of people in developed societies. And we're also one of the principal causes of disability and, and just plain misery for that matter. We don't ignore cancer. We don't ignore heart disease, but we do still ignore addiction. And that, that decision, which is in some ways a, a moral, ethical, philosophical decision, would then lead you to do a lot of things differently in terms of how you train physicians, how you paid for care, and how you integrated the care of addiction into the core of health. And I would highlight, I completely agree with Keith. I mean, this is a a crucial thing that we can do, build up the structure to stop discriminating the treatment of addiction as a disease and to put the same uh, level of urgency as, for example, we do for the treatment of cancer and identify that it is a continuum that we can prevent the more severe cases by intervening early on. As he was saying, for cardiac disease, we also see it for diabetes. And physicians are reimbursed for the interventions to take care of patients early on and to guide them toward behavioral change that will improve their outcomes. We should do the same thing with addiction, a sub-threshold condition or pre-addiction stage that enables clinicians to identify where the patterns of drug taken are risky and do an intervention for this, which they will be reimbursed. And I highlight reimbursement because without it, physicians are not incentivized to actually take action. So strengthening the healthcare systems and uh, being aware of the responsibility, I think it was one of the most important things that we can do to address the overdose crisis that we are living. I'm not endorsing this, but I just want to mention it as an extension of what Keith and Nora are talking about. There are nations that have decriminalized almost all drugs and treat this problem almost entirely as a health problem. It's very complicated and not sure if it's the right road for the United States, but that's how they view it. And we view it as both a criminal problem and a public health problem. We're out of time in this special topical episode of Talking Feds. Thank you very much to Lenny Nora Keith and especially to DEA Administrator Ann Milgram. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content, 
And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, and David Emmett. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.